Hello and welcome to A Chat with Anat. I'm Professor Anat Lowenstein, host of this podcast series. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Professor Paul Mitchell, an internationally renowned colleague, and we will discuss key topics of interest in enhancing care and optimizing the treatment of our patients with neovascular macular degeneration. Professor Paul Mitchell is the director of the Center for Vision Research at the West Med Institute for Medical Research and Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Sydney. And welcome to you, Paul. We all know that you are a great expert in macular degeneration and in retinal disease all over the world. Welcome, Paul, and thank you for joining us today for this chat. Uh, thank you so much, Annette. Really great to be with you today. In this episode, Paul and I will be discussing how the expectations of the patient their visual outcomes and treatment burden have changed during the beginning of the 21st century. We will talk about how these changes stemmed from the development of new therapies and new treatment modalities. We will also chat about what patients can look forward to with future developments. Paul, let's start with discussing how the prognosis and care for patients with Neovascular AMD was before the advent of treatments for neovascular disease, so in the latter half of the 20th century. Following diagnosis, what actually could patients typically expect for their vision and, as a result, for their quality of life? You know, we did the Blue Mountains Eye Study in the 90s and early 2000s, and we documented vision impairment in the better eye, and we found that particularly when this was due to neovascular AMD, it had a major impact on many um, major issues like falls, hip fractures, depression, increased need for community support services. It even uh, was associated with an earlier need for nursing home or hostel care. And indeed, it was also associated with higher mortality. Um, and in fact, the corollary, if you could reverse vision impairment, for example, with cataract surgery, people had increased survival. So these impacts on functional life and on the general health of people were really important. And I think it's not something that uh, many ophthalmologists practicing now are quite so aware of. Before the advent of the treatment that we have nowadays, all these patients could expect was to become actually legally blind pretty fast. Paul, before the anti-VEGFs came out, what could our patients actually expect when they were receiving treatment for neovascular macular degeneration? Initially, we had laser treatment, so we could directly um, target the new vessel with um, argon laser. Um, and, and this was only in people whose new vessel was outside the foveal center. There weren't so many of them. And of course, when we did this treatment, it was like heart in your mouth. It was You had to treat very close to the foveal center. And even then, when we had a success, usually vision was reduced and very frequently, within six months or 12 months, there would be a recurrence. The recurrence always occurred on the foveal side and nearly always was not treatable. Even though I did it and many patients, it was ultimately quite disappointing. We then had the advent of photodynamic therapy, which came in with a fanfare, you know, and, and people thought maybe this is a real solution. But, you know, all PDT really did was to stabilize vision in a few people. And when we look back at those outcomes, they were pretty mediocre. 
Uh, so, you know, PDT came and went uh, as being um, a, not a very useful treatment. And with PDT, it was difficult to convince the patients to continue the treatment every three months or whenever we needed it because they didn't feel any change. In the good case, they, the deterioration just stopped. So, uh, yeah, we've moved really, really far from this in the last in a few years. What we could do is to lower the percentage of patients who got legally blind. That's all we could do with the treatments that, that we had prior to the modern uh, intravitreal treatments. And I think, uh, you know, as a result, patients, once they got diagnosed with the disease, they knew that they will need to change their lifestyle, both of their, themselves and also their families and their caretakers. So I think both we and our patients are so fortunate that these things have changed in the last decade or so. And now, Paul, I'd like you to talk about the current anti-VGF therapies. As you said, their introduction revolutionized the treatment for neovascular macular degeneration by shifting the treatment goals from minimizing vision loss to reversing it. Can you tell us what this paradigm shift in treatment has meant for the patients and for the system? It was really only with the advent of anti-VEGFs that we saw a change. Anti-VEGF really came in about 16, 17 years ago. There were these two pivotal trials, MARINA, which was conducted in the US, and ANCA, which was conducted in the rest of the world. I think I had seven patients in ANCA. And, you know, I was masked to the treatment, but you could immediately see that this treatment was so effective. It actually improved patients' vision. At that time, we did the treatment every month for 24 months. Um, and, you know, the treatment, you know, was really effective. Initially, people were a bit hesitant because they thought, could you really inject an eye every month? But, of course, once we'd done two or three, the patients realized it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and, of course, it then became the standard of care. Yeah, well, I, I remember the first days that the, um, the results of uh, Marina and Ancor were introduced in the, I think it was the ASRS meeting in Montreal. And all of us stood up and gave a standing ovation because we were so excited of the, this prospect of finally seeing the curves go up, you know, and uh, not uh, stabilizing or low, going less down the curves of visual acuity. And it really changed uh, the way we are looking at the results of uh, treatments. Now, rather than look at stabilization or lowering of uh, chances to, to, to become legally blind, to lose six letter lines of vision, now we started to look at improvement in visual acuity. And um, this really transformed the treatment landscape and helped to improve the patient's quality of life and our whole way of, way of thinking, our clinical practice, uh, the way we manage the, the, the health system in our countries. But there was a problem, Annette. Patients tended to be treated in a PRN as needed or reactive approach. So what happened was that uh, doctors would do the three loading doses and then continue treatments, but start to deviate and not do them every month uh, and do it really as needed. And so when those PRN or reactive data were looked at, we realized that all those initial gains that patients achieved were then lost uh, almost every time. Uh, and so this was a hopeless way of treating patients to achieve long-term visual gains. And so then what yeah. happened is that um, clinicians realized we needed to continue treatment, but perhaps not every month. 
And so the concept of treat and extend came in. And this was actually well ahead of the label for the drugs. You know, at, at the end of the day, clinicians realized that this was a really good way of doing it. You could slowly extend the interval between injections. So when you got activity, uh, you could then stop at that point or reduce to the last interval. And this ultimately became the practice of choice around the world. Yes, so um, I think that since the last 16 years, since the advent of anti-VEGF therapy, uh, we've come a long way also in this regard. So we, we stayed with the same drugs, but we did change the, the regimen. From PRN, like you said, Paul, we moved more to treat and extend. Yeah, we realized that patients didn't need any visits in between the injection visits. So this was an important exactly. uh, concept that you could just simply, every time you saw a patient, you gave them an injection. The decision at that point was when should we see them next? Um, uh, and so um, a treat and extend really took over. But, you know, there were very few good studies of treat and extend. Um, there was an early one, the Lucas study, um, but then really no, not very major trials were done with treat and extend until recently when the Altair study was done uh, and then subsequently the ARIES study. And I think those two studies, and including Lucas, have actually shown us the interval patterns are actually rather similar. There's a somewhat biphasic distribution. So some patients need treatment relatively frequently, maybe eight weeks or even less, um, then 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Many people can then be extended 12 or 16. So each of these three studies showed the same biphasic design of treatment interval at either one year or two years. And that's actually been quite a helpful finding. Um, it not really reported previously. So we know that um, patients tend to fall into this pattern. Um, some people are relatively injection intensive. We see in, the, in our uh, clinics, maybe 10% or a little more are injection intensive. But we know that even though those people need relatively frequent injections, if you treat them aggressively enough, you get really good outcomes, the same as the people who can be extended. But we now realize that many people with this proactive treat and extend approach can actually be extended quite well. Even those people who sometimes are a little bit treat and intensive in the beginning, they can then actually later on be extended out quite well to 12 weeks or, or 16 weeks. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that we learned, Paul, and uh, you were um, really uh, very active in this understanding, this was that there is a difference in the biomarkers we use for the treatment decisions as compared to what we used at first. For example, that nowadays we believe that uh, subretinal fluid is less harmful than intraretinal fluid. Just to say, personally, I do not think that it's good that it's there. I really prefer to treat it. But if I have stable visual acuity and uh, subretinal fluid doesn't go after uh, multiple treatments, I may not chase it necessarily uh, as long as the visual acuity is stable and the amount of subretinal fluid is stable as well. That's right. That tolerance of subretinal fluid or at least some subretinal fluid is a new finding, uh, whereas intraretinal fluid is always something that we need to try to uh, abolish with, with the ongoing treatment. Looking forward to the future, uh, Paul, what are the potential developments on the horizon for the treatment of neovascular AMD from now on? And while answering this, if you could already comment, how will this 
developments improve the lives of our patients and our management of the patients in our busy practices. So, you know, we have two big problems with treating neovascular MD. The one is fibrosis. And, you know, we have to understand that sometimes a scar is not treatable. And, you know, there's a recent viewpoint from the um, Vision Academy about um, suspending treatment for futility. And I think this is a really important issue. Atrophy is another problem, um, and it may be appropriate to suspend treatment with atrophy. But, you know, there are new agents potentially being studied uh, for atrophy. Um, We had patients in the OAK study. That study, of course, was for pure geographic atrophy rather than associated with neovascular AMD in the same eye. And so those sorts of extra studies now need to be done. So we need to know when we treat our patients with neovascular disease, we need, of course, to know also about the developments in in geographic atrophy. And we're fortunate enough to have coming up treatments. You know, the Vision Academy also looked at whether you could consider suspending therapy in cases of success. And they've got a viewpoint which is being developed. You know, I've got many people who I've extended out to 16 weeks and I've discussed this with them. And one patient um, I I remember very, very well, uh, who's been on 16 weeks for 12 months. And I said, look, what about thinking about stopping? He said, I don't want to stop. I've got fantastic vision, uh, you know, for the 12 years you've been treating me. Let's not do it. But I think for some people, um, having a brief period, a holiday, uh, might actually be valuable. But I wouldn't then see them again 16 weeks later. I'd see them four to six weeks or eight weeks later to just make sure there was no recurrence. The other thing is that while you mentioned that people may go 16 weeks with the new treatments, with the old treatments, sometimes with the treat and extend regimen, like you said, and uh, you're really a big leader in this uh, area. When we leave our patients uh, home for four months and maybe six months with some of the novel uh, uh, technologies like slow-release devices, do you think that we need some kind of different monitoring, maybe home monitoring for the treated or the fellow eye? I think the idea of home monitoring is really important. You know, Amsler Grid really doesn't turn out to be very helpful. There was the 4C home device in ARIDS, which ultimately I think has been superseded now by the idea of home OCT, which can monitor the thickness of the retina on a sort of almost daily basis. Now, getting this into a practical, you know, cost-effective um, ability is, is still will be a challenge. But this ultimately will be the important issue. And, of course, as you mentioned, when you get people out to, say, 16 weeks, That doesn't mean six months or 24 weeks or longer. We have to be really advise people that this is getting close to the time when they could have a recurrence and they really do need to not be, not stretch it longer and not expect that they can just go six or nine months because then we're likely to see people presenting with a hemorrhage. Absolutely. I just want to mention regarding 4C home as compared to the home OCT, the 4C home is more positioned to detect the development of STNV. And it's in a huge, huge population of uh, intermediate AMD patients. We don't, no one has the ability to give all of them home OCTs. So therefore, it's still important for this purpose, while the home OCT is more for monitoring, like you said. But I totally agree that probably in order to really be on top of the situation in our patients that have a longer treatment intervals and to follow up also their fellow, we might need to consider some home monitoring system. This has been such an interesting chat. 
as we come to a close, what is your one key take-home message for our listeners about the evolution of treatment for neovascular AMD? Well, look, I think the key is getting the best vision we can for each patient. And that means actually looking at the factors for which they're likely to stop treatment. You've got to address all the reasons people might be non-adherent. And, you know, we've looked at this in many publications, and there are many known ones, like a distance from your clinic, like um, carer problems, time of day, comfort, these sorts of issues, out-of-pocket costs. These are really important. So we've got to address any reason that people will stop. We need to focus on achieving the best outcomes in the long term, not just for the first year or two. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, That was excellent, really. I'm sure the listeners benefited a lot from your knowledge and expertise and involvement in all the new things ever and your leadership in the management of neovascular uh, macular degeneration and all retinal disease in Australia and the whole world. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Professor Mitchell, my really special guest for today. And I would like to thank also all the listeners who joined us today. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jeanette. It was really great to talk with you again. So please subscribe to this postcard and listen to previous postcard episodes, which cover topics such as ways in which we can engage and empower our patients, how to further motivate our patients to be adherent, and how clinic organization can be used to improve adherence, persistence, and finally, the outcome. And please look out for future podcast episodes coming soon. And thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.